Great to see you all today. Feel free to take a seat. So good to see everybody on this Sunday morning. Not too hot. Davis's are back. See, some of y'all, some of y'all are new here. In the last three months, when I was saying our pastor's on sabbatical, y'all didn't believe me, but he's real. I told you. I told you he's real. You can go and poke him. I'm sure he'd love that. <laughs> Um, so my name's Adam. I'm the operations director here if I haven't met you before. And if I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you after. Come up and say hey to me. Come up and say hey to Caleb if you haven't met us yet. Um, we're in the middle of a love series. Everybody say, woo, love. <laughs> so we have this really sweet graphic. Um, so the first one was loving in heart, an authentic love. How do we have an authentic love seated at the, in, in, in the deepest parts of our being? Last week, Nick preached through loving in words, a big part of loving. What do we say? How do we say it? Today, we're going to be preaching through a third thing. And this is, here's the reality with love. We have the chance to love every hour almost, every day, every week, every month. There's a lot of chances and situations for us to love. There's so many opportunities. And sometimes, Sometimes we think of loving like in cataclysmic events, right? Like sometimes if somebody maybe passes away, we think about loving and caring for their family. If somebody gets sick, if somebody has like a, a major need, something came up, and that's all true. But, but probably what's also true is a lot of the opportunities that we have to love come in the little things, in the daily opportunities that we have, a dozen, even two dozen opportunities a day. So loving in action is everything from sitting with somebody who's really hurting to all the way to like not, you know, not somebody shares trail mix with you, not taking the M&Ms. Like that's a great way to love. <laughs> Everything in between, right? So many opportunities to love. And look, if, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, if you're not a Christian, you're thinking about it. You're thinking about God. You're thinking about Jesus. Who is this guy? What did he do? Probably you look at love as a virtue. Probably you look at loving in action and you say, yeah, okay, you know, I could probably use more of that in my life. That's probably a good thing. That's probably how you look at love. And, and so you could use a little more. And so we ask ourselves this question. We think about all the opportunities that we have to love. We ask ourselves, how do we love in action in the different situations that we face? So many situations to do something in love. So many on our daily, hourly, weekly basis. How do we do that? How do we do that? In, in Romans 12... 9 through 18, is going to address this for us today. And it's by no means, uh, it's by no means exhaustive. Um, but it's also deliberate. Because remember, the Holy Spirit, God's very Spirit, superintended and oversaw the writing of the Bible. So this little passage that we're going to be looking at today is intentional from God. So let's read it together. I'm going to be in uh, the CSB version. If you're going to boot up your phones or whatever, if you're still a paper guy, paper girl, feel free to pull that up. Here it is. Let love, can you turn me, uh, I got a little bit of heat. Can you guys turn me down a little bit? Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So before we even get into the body of this text today, verse 9 is important because it kind of sets the tone. Verse 9 kind of sets the tone and qualifies everything that's about to come. First thing it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Other versions say, let love be genuine. And then as you guys saw, the rest of the passage spells that out practically for us. Here's the next thing that he says, though. The next thing in the second half of verse 9 is this. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Now, some other versions translate detest evil as abhor, maybe a bit of a stronger word. Still, other versions translate it as hate exceedingly. Some of you are like, hate? I thought this was church. Aren't we reading the Bible? What are we we supposed to be hating? I don't think I'm supposed to hate anything in Christianity. Well, Paul's saying, think again. Detest evil. Hate it. Because here's the reality I love that the passage sets this up here. Here's the reality. God does not stand neutrally towards evil. He hates it. He doesn't stand with a whatever attitude towards the wickedness of the world. He despises it. And he's the loving God. Paul encourages us, cling to what is good. Hate evil and cling to what is good. Genesis, um, this hit me like a ton of bricks. I was reading Genesis 6-6 a while back. And this is, the context of Genesis 6-6 is, is right before Noah, right before the flood. And it says that God is looking down on the world and people are doing only evil all the time. And the modern translations render the next part and it says that it grieved God to his heart that people were doing that. I love an old school version of the NIV where it literally says that God's heart was filled with pain from the evil of the world. Because here's the reality, evil affects God. And God does not stand neutrally towards it, neither should we. And this is how the passage sets the tone for us here. So it, it, it begs us to ask ourselves the question, is there anything in our lives, any evil in our lives that we're standing neutrally towards? Just kind of letting it pass. Well, what do you mean by that? Adam, here's what I mean. Maybe you're like in a situation and somebody's gossiping. And you just wait it out. You just sit back. Let it go by. It'll pass. Won't participate, but not going to shut it down either. Is that standing neutrally towards something that God hates? Talking bad about somebody when they're not there. What about like a gross joke? It's happened to me the other night. Um, like a, a, just a joke that is nasty. Maybe you, you throw them a bone and give them a chuckle, just wait for it to pass. Or do you say something? God does not stand neutrally towards evil. And neither should we. We should abhor it. So what are the things that you feel like maybe, as you think through your life, things that you know are evil, but you're just kind of standing neutrally towards? This is the thing that the passage kicks us off with. What are we clinging? Are we clinging to good and hating evil? Hating sin. This is a part of loving in action. So the first question that we ask ourselves, how? How are we to love in action? Because there's a lot of stuff that God said in this passage. Here's the first thing that he says, right after verse 9, the tone-setting verse. The next thing that he says is this. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. How are we to love one another? As a biological family should. That's what Paul's saying. 
How are we to love another? Picture a biological family, the way they should care about each other, the way they should love each other. Because Paul's talking right here about Christians. So right now he's talking, how should Christians love other Christians? He's going to address other parties later, as we'll see. But this is what he's talking about right now. How should we love each other? The way a biological family does, because here's the reality. The bond of Christ in the church family goes deeper than blood. Is that real to you? Is the metaphysical reality of being a part of the family of God real to you? Is, does, it go, does it run that deep where it's like a biological family? This is the first great sort of illustration that Paul gives. Here, look at the second half of verse 10, though. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is how a biological family, and what he's saying, us, the family of God, should love one, one another, outdo one another in showing honor. But here's, hopefully some of you have experienced this. Hopefully some of you have been part of really close friend groups or even biological families or church families where there was a lot of honor shown. But my guess is a lot of you can probably think of a lot of times where it was the opposite. A lot of you can probably think of a lot of times where your family was characterized by tearing down. Maybe you think of that slow drip of sarcasm. Maybe it was from a parent or a friend. And look, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with sarcasm, but if that's definitive for you, if that's like characteristic of who you are, sarcasm, it's a building up. And how, over the course of months and years, that can just rip somebody to pieces. Rip somebody to pieces, that slow drip of criticism. So here's what God's saying. Outdo one another in showing, in showing honor, not tearing one another down. Because in God's family... In God's family, we show honor to one another. And I know that for a lot of us, this brings to mind times when that wasn't the case. But God's saying, in my biological families, people show honor. In our churches, my leaders build a culture where honor is shown. Yes, there's a time for speaking critical feedback in love. But in general, my people and my family that I set up and that defines me is characterized by showing honor to one another. This is what Paul is saying. And it's only by God's power that this can happen. Look, we know this, right? We know, we think about friend groups, we think about families, we think about all these times when it was, there was so much destruction in the words that were spoken. And we know how common that is. And we know that in order to come to a place where this is what characterizes our family, outdoing one another and showing honor, we know that it's only by the power of God, only by crying out to him and asking for him to change us, asking for him to set that foundation for us, does that happen? Because so often, we've experienced the exact opposite. This is verse 10. How are we to love in action? The way a biological family should. Because the bond of Christ is deeper than blood. Show, uh, outdoing one another and showing honor. Here's the next one. How are we to love in action? Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. This is what he's saying. With passion. Love with passion and devotion and perseverance. This is what a love that acts does. It looks for, when love is listening to somebody talk, it remembers their name. It actually listens to what they said and thinks about, oh, how can I care for that person? How can I love that person? This is what a love that's passionate does because it cares so much. And look, sometimes people are going to misunderstand you when you love. Maybe you've had this where, some, where you try and give somebody a compliment or you're trying to care for somebody and they like get really mad. Or maybe you all have, in your pursuit of trying to care and love for some, love somebody in action. It's exhausting. 
where you just want to like have some me time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's tiring. And here's what Paul is saying. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Persevere. Be fervent in the spirit. Let your heart be filled with the spirit of God. In all of this, serve the Lord. Remember what Jesus says, that what you did for the least of these, you did for me. This is serving Jesus when we love one another with passion and devotion. So this is kind of the tone-setting passage where um, how are we to love in action? He's talking about the way a biological family should, outdoing one another, showing honor, passion, and devotion. These are the, this is the picture that he paints of the family of God that loves one another. So we talked about how. How are we to love in action? So then we go to when. When are we to love in action? And verse 12 is interesting because I think it's actually talking about loving God, not about necessarily loving people. Look at what it says. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. So this is talking about suffering. When are we to love in action? When we and others suffer. But this is, look at what it's saying, though. Rejoice in hope. It's God that gives us hope. Be patient in affliction. This is something that honors God because it shows that we trust him. And we know, it shows we know that he's with us. Be persistent in prayer and calling out to him. These are things that we do when we suffer that can love God. Because we're called to love one another. We're also called to love the one who put love in our hearts. The one who put love in our hearts. Rather than despairing in hopelessness, we rejoice in hope. Because of God's power, we know that he can do that. And because of his promises to us, we can have hope in affliction. We can have patience in affliction because genuine love for him brings to remembrance that Jesus walked in the furnace. We can have patience in affliction because we know that Jesus knows what we're going through and that he has a purpose. So we can honor God and love him with our patience. And we can persist in prayer because we expect God to do something when we pray to him. That's loving him. Look, sometimes with prayer, sometimes with prayer, it can be monologue rather than dialogue. And that can happen both ways. So, like, we can, we can sit with God's word, and just read through it. This is God's word. This is God speaking to us. Read through it, God speaking to us, and break off the conversation. That's it. We just read through it. We're done. So, too, monologue the other way. We can call out to God in prayer, thanks, confession, asks, all kinds of stuff. But then that's it. We're done. We don't wait for his response. So often, our, with prayer, our, our conversation is monological with God rather than dialogical with God. And you know what? I think sometimes that comes from the fact that maybe sometimes we don't actually think God's a person. Sometimes it's hard for us to realize that Jesus is a person who wants to have a discussion. How weird would it be if you're at a coffee shop and one person talked the whole time? Literally, the other person didn't say one thing and then done. Talk about the most awkward thing of the week. Like, we don't do that, and we shouldn't do that with God. When you pray with God, seek his face in his word. See what he maybe supernaturally brings to you at a time such as this. Maybe he brings something to you in his word that's timely for your situation. So too, the opposite, when you read God's word and see his eternal truth, the Bible says is everlasting, do you respond to him in it? God, I don't get this. God, I don't do this. God, thank you for this. God, you are so wonderful in this. Do you dialogue with God in prayer? Because you know that's what he wants not monologue, because it's probably just as weird for him as it would be for you sitting in the coffee shop. God wants to dialogue with you because he loves you. Do you know that? Do you dialogue with God? And again, this is when we suffer. 
This is the way that we can love God. When are we to love God? When we suffer. Here's the next thing, verse 13. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Again, because we're a family, and a family cares for one another's needs, no matter the situation. If you're not wincing from your generosity every so often, it could be that maybe your comfort is too high of a priority for you. You're not wincing from your generosity. Look, I was, I was at the gym. <clears throat> Some of y'all are like, fake news. I was at the gym six years ago, okay? <laughs> six years ago. I was at the gym, and I was, uh, I was, do, I was under the squat rack. I was doing legs because I don't cut corners, okay? I was under the squat rack, and I'm squatting, feeling pretty fresh about myself. Walk over to get some water, looking back at the squat rack. This huge guy, half ox, half man, <laughs> walking up to the squat rack. Like, this guy doesn't even need to shop at Baby Gap to fill out his shirts like me, you know what I'm saying? So he, he walks up to the squat rack, gets under it, and I'm like, this guy's, not, this guy's doing the same weight that I'm doing. This guy is huge. Huh, and I'm feeling so good about myself. And right as I'm brushing off my shoulders, as this guy's getting up underneath the rack. For most people, your legs are the biggest muscle groups in your body. So for most people, like a leg press, that's the most weight you can do. This guy gets under the rack and lifts it with his shoulders over his head. <laughs> and my mouth, like, hit the floor. My eyes got all shifty, and I, like, got out of there, you know? Here's the point. How do you think that guy got there? I'll tell you how he got there. Two and a half pounds at a time. Two and a half pounds at a time, week after week. If your generosity isn't changing year after year, that's not what a love that packs does. It doesn't stay the same. If, your budget, if you're reviewing your budget at the end of the year and nothing about your generosity changes, I'm not saying you're going to get all the way to, like, by the time you retire, you're going to be at 99% giving, but, but do you even consider... Should my giving to the church be the same? Should my budget for just when people need stuff, should that be the same? Do you have an example, like me with this huge guy, do you have examples of people in your life who God has given the gift of generosity to that he's put there to inspire you with? Do you have people that you look at, are you, t- are you putting two and a half pound weights on one at a time? Because <clears throat> my guess is, if you're not growing in generosity, then probably your opinion of Jesus and his generosity isn't growing either. Because the deeper that you peer into the gospel of truth, the more it's going to change you, and the more it's going to change what you do. And that, that means sharing in the saints and their needs. I love pursue hospitality. Don't just like wait for hospitality. If an opportunity for hospitality comes my way, I shall take it. No, go after it. It's active. This is the love, this is the passionate love that Paul was talking about before. It goes after chances to care for people in hospitality. <clears throat> When are we to love in action? When we suffer, we can love God in action with trusting him, praying to him. When people have needs with hospitality, here's the last one, in both weeping and rejoicing. Look at this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, this might be a a pretty easy one for us to picture, caring about people when they're going through something, empathizing with them. But you know what I love about this? That kind of just hit me like a ton of bricks as I was spending time with this this week. I love that he doesn't qualify this. He doesn't say, weep with those who weep, if they, if they should be weeping. Like, if, if, it's not, if that's not the response that they should have, don't do it. Doesn't qualify it. 
You know why? Because God cares about people's emotions. Look, did any one of us approach God with proper emotional responses to the things that go on in our life? God cares about people's emotional disposition. He cares about when they rejoice, and he cares about the things that make them weep. But look, sometimes it's easy for us to judge. Maybe you got that friend who's pretty well off. Their basement is like 3,000 square feet, and it floods. And you're like, suck it up, bro, because your basement is like 2,200 square feet more than my entire house. This is not what a love that acts does, Paul says. And look, there might be a time to speak the truth in love, like we talked about last week. Of course there's going to be a time, but not first. Not first. That's not what a love does, what a love that acts does. It weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice. I was a... I remember uh, my first year of college, I, uh, I had a full credit load, and then I, I realized that in order to have money, I had to work while I was in full-time school. Translation, Adam had to work hard. <clears throat> but that was hard for 18-year-old Adam, because 18-year-old Adam was made of snowflakes and cookie dough, <laughs> okay? Um, and I, I remember calling one of my mentors at the time and telling him about it. It's just so embarrassing, like, looking back on this. Like, Adam had to work hard, you know? Um, and I remember calling him and telling him, like, I was, I was racked with anxiety about it, um, and saying to him, like, I, I'm so anxious. I, I started crying on the phone. And, you know, had, um, had I called myself four years in the future, four years in the future, Adam would have talked to 18-year-old Adam and been like, yo, you got two parents that love you? You're at a nice college. You grew up in an upper-middle-class upper family. The suffering that you've had in your life is moderate to low. Suck it up, bro. That's what I would have said to myself. But this guy, uh, who was my mentor at the time, as I'm talking to him, I stopped because I could hear him crying. Sorry. Um, and it's crazy because it was so, such a childish response from me. It was such a childish response to me. You know, he might have said to me, hey, Adam, what a great opportunity for you to step into manhood. But, you know, if he said that, I don't remember it. But you know what I remember? I remember that he wept about it. Twelve years later, that's the only thing I remember. There's a reason for that. Because I knew that he cared for me. I knew that he loved me. And because of that, this man had immense power to speak into my life. Because I knew that he really cared. And should I have been weeping about the fact that my cotton candy body was disintegrating? Probably not. And yet I was. And he cared about that. And 12 years later, it still affects me to this day. (laughs) Because he wept with me when I was sad, even if maybe I shouldn't have been. Because he cared about my emotions. Because his heart was filled with the love of the God that cared about his. When are we to love in action? In both weeping and rejoicing when we suffer, when people have needs. So we talked about how. We talked about when. Now let's talk about who. Who are we to love in action? Look at verses uh, 14 and 17. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, semicolon. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, Then he says it a third time. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. This is the only thing in this passage 
that Paul says three times, including a semicolon. I don't know if y'all are using semicolons in your daily life. He uses one. Actually, I guess he really doesn't because it's in Greek, but anyway. Um, He says it three times. You know why? Because he knows our hearts. He knows that we're going to read this and have a gigantic eye roll and be like, yeah, can't wait to do that. Never. Look, some of y'all are sitting to yourself like, you don't know, like, you don't know who my neighbor is. I'm praying for Armageddon every day so this guy can get smoked, okay? You don't know who my neighbor is. You don't know what that boss did to me. You don't know what that person said to me. You don't know what that person did to me. It destroyed me. This person is enemy to me. How can you ask, how can you ask me to do that? So here's the, here's the thing. Um, so I, I don't know what situation might come to your mind when Paul says, do not repay evil for evil. And all this really is a reference to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he says to love our enemies. I don't know who comes to mind, who has done evil to you, and, but, you know, and if it was what the situation was, let's just assume that it was evil. That they did wrong by you. They should not have done that. And I'm sorry that whatever they did, that they did that to you. So why would Paul ask this? Why would Paul command this? Why would he command this? I think the answer is seen when we understand our relationship to Jesus truly. You see, we weren't neutral before Jesus, before he saved us. He didn't stand neutrally towards us, and we didn't stand neutrally towards him. In fact, it was what we did that put him on the cross. You understand how serious that is? We were enemies of Jesus before he saved us. Look, this is how Romans says it. Few, few, few chapters earlier, Romans 5, 9 through 10, same, same letter. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Listen, can you see that enemy love is actually the foundational love of the church? Can you see that without Jesus' enemy love, not one of us is here, Thank God that Jesus loves his enemies. Because who can stand if he doesn't? So who has been enemy to you? Because enemy love is our heritage. It's Jesus' gift to us because that's who he is. That's our heritage. So who has been enemy to you? Who's the person that as you think right now, has wronged you in some way. That's what the Holy Spirit maybe brings to your mind. Because whoever it is, is the same person that Paul is calling you to bless. Because our Lord did the same for us. Thank God that he did. Thank God that he did. Who are we to love in action? Our enemies. And those who do wrongly to us, who are we to be hospitable to, who are we to serve, those who do wrongly to us. 
Because that's who our Lord is. He sets the tone for this family. This family, he's the head of this family. Who are we to love in action? Our enemies. Here's the last one. Verses 16 and 18. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Then he says it again here. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This is talking about conflict. Because here's the reality. Every family fights. Every single family has conflict. There is no escaping it. The question is, what are you going to do about it? That's the question that Paul is asking us to ask ourselves. What are you going to do about that conflict? Because here's the reality. The Prince of Peace calls us to go and make peace. The Prince of Peace calls us into reconciliation. And look, if you've ever been a part of like reconciliation or any type of like conflict discussion, you know, like looking back on, on this, um, like do not be proud, you know that in a conflict reconciliation, that's the graveyard of your pride. Because look, you know, let's just say most conflicts aren't going to be 50-50. Sure, most conflicts, maybe some person's a little more at fault than the other person. But the reality of conflict reconciliation is that you see the way in which you've fallen short. And there's no excuse for you not to hand that over to God, not to confess that, even if you think that you're not mostly in the wrong. The Prince of Peace calls you to be a peacemaker, both with your family and those outside your family. I love how he says it. If possible, as far as it depends on you. I love the active. It's like the hospitality earlier. Pursue hospitality. As far as it depends on you, go and reconcile. Again, because the Prince of Peace is the great reconciler. And he's the head of this family. And dare I say that it might bless you. Dare I say that it might set you free from the bond of hate, from the bond of anger. Dare I say that your obedience to Jesus in this is going to bless you because he's generous. He does stuff like that from time to time. If, it pos- if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Who are we to love in action? Our enemies and those we are in conflict with. So who do you need to reconcile with? Sometimes uh, in summer, uh, we travel a lot. Sometimes you see family. And sometimes when you see family, you slip into old habits. People say things they've been saying for decades. And sometimes it makes people really mad. Are you ready to step into conflict resolution? Are you ready to pursue peace, maybe for the first time in years? Because this is what our Lord calls us to. In conclusion, how do we love in action in the different situations that we face? We think about the, our Lord and the ways that he loves, I mean, he, he defines all of these things. How are we to love in action? Deeply as a biological family should, showing honor to one another with passion and devotion, persevering when it gets hard, when you get exhausted, tr- attempting to stick through it, and when you fail, ask God for help because you know that that's what he can empower you to do. When are we to love in action? When we suffer, we can love God by trusting him and realizing that he's with us. And when we fail at that, we ask for his help and he gives more grace. When people have needs, do you grow in that? In weeping and in rejoicing. Not judging, 
for whatever emotional maturity level brought them to where they are, but caring about their disposition. I, uh, I wasn't going to say this, but I remember um, I was talking with Caleb three years ago, maybe more, but um, we were going through like a, a gospel counseling um, unit, and I was talking to him about how my wife and I were practicing it, and I was, you know, we were doing it on each other, and the model is love, no, speak, do. And I was telling Caleb, I was like, dude, I'm trying to like do this, and it's not working. Like, we're just not having the conversation. Well, we're both getting mad. And Caleb was like, well, I mean, are you, are you loving her first? Like, do you care about the way that it made her feel? Like, because if, if, you, if, you're, if you're entering into it that way, you're speaking the way that you're speaking, it sounds like that you're just trying to solve the problem. It doesn't sound like you're actually empathizing with the way that she feels. And I was like, oh, really? Ah, I don't know about that. And, it, of course, it was true. That's exactly what the problem was. I didn't care about the way that she was coming to the situation, about how she felt about it, regardless of the reasons she felt that way, and if she should have. I needed to empathize and love first. Who are we to love in action? Our enemies, our brothers and sisters in Christ, those we're in conflict with. These are the things that this passage providentially brings forward. So when we take communion, when we take communion, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, the great lover of enemies. What clearer picture is there than the cross, than enemy, for enemy love? What clearer picture of, is there of who God is, the Father, who Jesus says he came to represent? He came to teach us who he is. He came to introduce and show us who the Father is. What clearer picture is there than the cross? And our Lord who went there for us for our sake. When we take communion, we remember him. Pray with me. God. Jesus, you are so wonderful. You're so beautiful. God, so much when we read through this passage that your servant Paul wrote, we see wonderful ways that we can serve and bless and love and care for people in action. And we also see the ways in which we fail at that. Jesus, thank you that you are the source. Jesus, you said apart from you, we can do nothing. God, teach us to invite you into those situations. Lord Jesus, let us see with clear eyes. Let us see with clear eyes what you did and who you are. Let, us, let that fill us to the brim as we go forth this week and try to obey you because we love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. Jesus, we ask for your help because we need you and we love you. And we pray this in your wonderful and holy and worthy name. Amen.